WDBM East Lansing. Hello and welcome to Exposure on Impact 89FM, the show where we talk to members of organizations at Michigan State University and nonprofit organizations in the East Lansing area. We strive to promote diversity, freedom of expression, and resources to MSU students. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Exposure. I'm Stephanie, your host, and today we're talking to Spartans Rebuilding Michigan. Thanks, Lauren, for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. Yeah. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what you do with Spartans Rebuilding Michigan? Yeah, definitely. So we have been around for about six years now on campus. Our main goal is to connect students to different community organizations around the East Lansing and Lansing area. That's awesome. So can you talk about some of the partnerships that you have? Yeah, definitely. Some of the people that we work weekly with are the Tri-County Office on Aging, do a lot of meals on wheels with them and cooking with them. We also do food prep with Ronald McDonald House over near Sparrow Hospital. That one is one of my favorite organizations to work with. It's really fun to go and cook food with different club members and whatnot. We also work with the Firecracker Foundation. We just helped out with their Soul Fire Gala, which was an awesome fundraiser. Yeah, they're a wonderful organization. Yeah, yeah, they're they're fantastic, and we've worked a lot with them in the past. So, yeah, just a couple awesome local organizations. Yeah. So how did you get involved with Spartans Rebuilding Michigan? So my freshman year, I think it was just through a general email that they sent out. Um, we always bombard students with emails. Yeah. But I I thought it was really interesting. It sounded like a cool opportunity. I went to... A meeting with them and then volunteered at Boo at the Zoo, which is at the zoo in Lansing. And it was fantastic. I met so many wonderful people and I was just hooked from there. Were you involved in a lot of nonprofit work previously? Is that what drew you to this? Yes and no. I was involved in a couple of things in high school, but nothing major. But I think it was really just the connections that I made with the people in addition to the volunteer work that really made me want to stay and get more involved. And what are you guys' typical meetings like? We have meetings once a month. It's usually the first Monday of every month. They run about an, a half hour to an hour long. Usually we just run through what we have upcoming, like our events and activities. And we'll usually do a meeting activity. We will generally donate something that can be made at a meeting to, to veterans or elderly communities or something like that. At our October meeting, we made dog toys and whatnot and donated them to an animal shelter. So just kind of fun stuff, um, but also informational. So outside of just the normal meetings and like volunteer work, do you guys do some like fun activities to bond as a team? Yeah, definitely. So we have um, our social director, Elizabeth Hampton. She is fantastic. She organizes all of our internal social events. Um, So we had a really fun hayride. We had a great turnout for that. We have lots of fun just kind of like bonding smaller stuff as well. But it's also a great way to just interact at the volunteer events. So I think a lot of people will hang out with their friends at volunteer events and meet people through those as well. That's great. So Obviously, you're doing a lot of volunteer work. Is there a specific organization that is like one of your favorites? Or can you share like a time where you really felt the impact of the work you were doing? Yeah, definitely. I think that not even necessarily a volunteer event, but one of our biggest fundraisers, I think, is one of my favorites. We in the past have put on an event called Climb for Kids, which is a stair climb event at the Breslin Center. Last year, we raised over $4,000 for the Children's Miracle Network. And that money went directly to the Sparrow Foundation in Lansing. So that was just a really fun and really successful event. It was decades themed, so I got to wear a tracksuit and a (laughs) wig. And (laughs) it was just a really fun community building and interactive event. So I think that's been one of my favorites. Yeah. So as a whole, it sounds like Spartans Rebuilding Michigan, they do a lot of like monthly meetings where they get to make things that support people in the Lansing community, as well as you guys go to various nonprofits and help out with their events, and you do fundraisers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So how do you go about choosing who you guys work with? A lot of our recommendations have come from organizations that we've worked in the past and have built up kind of relationships with. 
But we also have a fantastic advisor who works in the student services building, Christopher Keaton. He is fantastic. And I've worked really closely with him for the last couple of years. And he has built up relationships with a lot of different community partners as well and is always kind of recommending to us um, different ways to get involved in the Lansing area. So he's a big part of helping us find different organizations to work with. Yeah. If you're a volunteer part of this, do you get to help? Like, hey, I found this really cool nonprofit. Can we do something for them? Is there some student feedback as well? Yeah, definitely. We have gotten a couple of fantastic suggestions of people who are maybe already volunteering regularly at some sort of community organization who are like, hey, you should you know, get more people involved in this. And that's been a, a great way for us also to find new exciting opportunities as well. So can you list a couple? I know you listed some of the organizations you've helped in the past, but are there a few more that you can talk about? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we we have a huge list. We generally have, I would say, anywhere between five and ten volunteer events per week. Oh, I wow. think a really awesome one that we just added this year is um, the Beekman Riding Center. So they they are a riding center for... They offer um, horse riding for people with disabilities. I know a lot of our members have enjoyed getting to interact with horses because it's not something that you can do really every day or on a college campus. So I think that's been really fun. I think a lot of our stuff involves kind of like cooking and cleaning, which I think is enjoyable for some, obviously not for most. But we do a lot of kind of things to help with organizations when they can't necessarily get to that kind of stuff when they have other things to be doing. So I think a lot of our work is done just kind of relieving the burden of like extra activities and chores around people's offices and stuff like that. That's definitely something people don't think about too. Like you think of all the good work that each nonprofit is doing, you don't think about the day-to-day things that they need to get done. So it's really cool that you help out with those day-to-day, even though it might not be the most fun to cook or clean or do something like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So there's a lot of organizations. How do you differentiate like what you guys do compared to other groups around on campus? I know there are like multiple volunteer organizations. I think one thing that makes us different is I think it's very easy to get involved at a higher level besides just volunteering. I think we make it easy for members who are committed and really want to work with us to join our committees and our e-board. Do you have an awesome leadership team and it's massive. This year we have 23 people oh, wow. um, leading the group. So it's really, it's a great way to kind of stay connected to us. And if you, um, if you're really passionate about the work that you do, we want to reward that. So and it's a great way to just become more involved and develop relationships with people who are passionate about the same things as you. Absolutely. It's definitely a good way to meet people around campus. So Mm -hmm. you talked about your leadership. What do each of the different leadership people do? Yeah, so I'm the president of the organization. So I just kind of oversee the executive board and the committees and make sure that everything is running well and that we're kind of headed in the right direction. We have an internal and external vice president. The external vice president deals with organizing events and building relationships with our community partners. Internal vice president works with all of our membership and whatnot. Our social director, as I said, plans all of our bonding events. We have an awesome fundraising director who plans internal and external fundraisers. So like I mentioned, Climb for Kids in the past just had an awesome succulent sale where we raised a lot of money for our club. We have our secretary and treasurer, obviously, who are fantastic as well. And then we have committees under the external team, our social team, our fundraising team, and our marketing director as well, who is responsible for our social media posting and just kind of general outreach. And the marketing team is fantastic as well. And our social media is bomb. So (laughs) um, give us a follow. Where could we follow you at? Our Instagram is Spartans Rebuilding Michigan, as well as our Facebook. 
So it sounds like there's people, if you want to, besides just volunteering, you can be a part of the leadership team. Like you said, there's multiple marketing teams. Is that all volunteer-based as well, or are they like in those leadership roles? Yeah, they are volunteer positions. We ask all of our members to do a minimum of five hours of volunteering a semester, which is pretty easy to get done in a couple of events. Yeah, And then we require 10 hours of all of our leadership positions, but those are all volunteer and pretty decent commitment load but not not too much yeah and you said that there's like five to ten events per week usually so where do the volunteers go to find out about all of these events you have going on yeah so we usually post about them once a week on our social media sites because I think that's the best way that our members stay up to date with us Mm -hmm. is by checking those And then we also have a Google Doc, which we use for sign up for events. So that lists everything that we have going on for the month. And that is how our members sign up for everything. Um, So it's really easy. It's also on our website. So we have a couple different, like I said, outlets for for them to get involved and be more knowledgeable about the events. Yeah, of course. So I know it is getting towards the end of the semester. But if people were interested in helping either this semester or next semester, how would they get in contact? Yeah, definitely. So we have an email. It's srm1855 at gmail.com. We're always open to questions about new membership and how to get involved. We also have our website, spartansrebuildingmichigan.org, and that's another great way to just stay informed about our upcoming meetings and learn about how to join. But it's really easy, honestly, just coming to a meeting and making your face known and signing up for events. That's just kind of the first step and then just staying with it but I think we we're always accepting new members Mm -hmm. so it's really easy to to get involved with us so for those that are interested in volunteering how would you encourage them to join even if they're a little on the fence about it yeah definitely so I think um, another fantastic thing about SRM is that we do offer events at all different hours of the day all different days of the week so we have weekend events we have evening events, we have morning events. So you can kind of pick and choose what fits best with your schedule and tailor it to to what you're interested in. So if you are a pre-vet major, you can work in an animal shelter with us. You can work at the Beekman Riding Stables. If you are an education major, we have tutoring at Mount Hope Church every week. We have a lot of stuff with kids. So you can kind of fit what works best for you and tailor it to that. That's great. So how are you going to personally use this experience as the president of Spartans Rebuilding Michigan as well as your volunteer experience in the years after college? So I've actually been talking to a lot of the former presidents about how SRM has shaped their careers. And they said it comes up in all of their interviews and and whatnot in the future. So I said it, it has been really helpful for them to be able to talk about it and just demonstrate how they've developed as leaders. I think just in general, it's given me a great sense of of just purpose at Michigan State. I think it's just been really rewarding, but also the relationships that I've built with the friends that I've made on eBoard and all of the fantastic community partners that I've met. I think just those relationships in general have really empowered me to just do the best that I can in everything. Yeah. And once you get a career, how do you see this you know, this passion to volunteer going to continue throughout your life? Yeah, so I am currently applying to graduate schools for speech pathology. I hope to eventually become a speech therapist and work with all sorts of kids. But I think that advocacy is important in any field that you go into, especially when working with children, because it's it's so important to really be invested in their future and their well-being. So I think just that sense of passion for helping others will definitely help me in my future. That's great. So thank you so much for coming in. Um, for those of you who are listening, this was Lauren from Spartans Rebuilding Michigan. And they volunteer at various nonprofits around the community and just really get to help people around us. So thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. Just a reminder, you are listening to WDBM Impact 89 FM. Stay tuned. We have more coming up. 
Good morning, everyone. It's your host, Stephanie. And up next here, we have some people from MSU Peace Corps. But before we get to the interview, I have a special guest with us here today. Welcome, Alexa. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Yeah, so Alexa will be helping out from now on, and I'm super excited to have here. But thank you both, Erica and Chad, for coming in. They're part of MSU Peace Corps. So can you tell the listeners just a little bit what you guys do and what MSU Peace Corps is all about? Yeah, definitely. So my name's Chad. Um, I'm one of the two Peace Corps recruiters here at Michigan State University. And I'm Erica. I am also a returned Peace Corps volunteer and a recruiter here at Michigan State. Uh, Just a little bit of information about Peace Corps. So we are a federal agency um, that we send Americans abroad to live, work, and learn in communities working on a variety of grassroots development projects. Uh, We have one main mission, which is to spread peace and friendship globally. But the way we do that is through three specific goals. That first goal is kind of what most people think about when they think about Peace Corps, which is this idea of meeting the the needs of trained men and women in a country abroad. So this idea of like kind of like technical exchange, like maybe you teach English, maybe you're there working on like disease prevention. But then we also have two other goals. So our second goal is this idea of cultural exchange and the fact that you are an American, you embody a lot of what America is, the ideals, the diversity that we are as a country, and you're in this host country to teach local people about America. And then the last goal is what we call our third goal, which is kind of the inverse. So you spend two years in this community, you're integrating, you're learning about the culture, you're learning a language, and then it's also part of your job as you come back to the U.S., to teach other Americans about the culture that you just lived in. Yeah, and as recruiters at Michigan State, we really like, one, making sure people know about the Peace Corps and like, what is it? Why would you want to do it? And trying to meet people's um, you know, questions about what they have. But um, we also really like to help people through the application process because it is like applying to a government job and is a little bit lengthy. So Yeah, actually, a couple of my cousins were a part of the Peace Corps, so it's really cool to see that We have an office here at Michigan State. Yeah. Um, But can you just describe your experience as a part of it? Yeah. So I was an environmental action volunteer in the Republic of Benin, which is in sub-Saharan West Africa. And I was there from 2005 to 2008. And as I talk about my service so much, it doesn't feel like it was over a decade ago, but it really (laughs) was, which is really weird. Um, As an environmental action volunteer, so I had a I had a degree in biology, like field ecology kind of biology. So I, it was evident that I liked spending time outside, but mm-hmm. I'd also done a lot of volunteering. Just I was like in the French club and we did, you know, like read at the local library and I tutored with the Boys and Girls Club. So I was just kind of out there doing stuff. Um, but what I really uh, enjoyed doing as a volunteer was being with people and uh, really getting to know a lot of the people in that community where I lived for two years. So I did do environment work. I was in a tree nursery um, and in a garden. There was an organization that had those, and we worked with women's groups to encourage their efforts in gardening and in very rudimentary waste management kind of practices. Um, In the tree nursery, mostly we took care of planting um, agroforestry type species, And then a big truck would come and haul them off and go plant them in a big plantation somewhere. And then as uh, the president of that organization and I got to know each other better and learned what our mutual interests were, um, he conceived of this project of planting native trees in what's known as wooded shrines. And so this is, these are essentially where people worship in the local religion, but the trees and the different plants and animals are important for the local religion, but they're also important for um, like traditional healing, so pharmaceutical stuff. So the president of this NGO knew which species were the most beneficial. So I was like, all for it. I was like, this sounds totally interesting. And I didn't know the technical knowledge, but mm-hmm. I had the ability to find the resources and the enthusiasm to kind of help make sure it happened. Um, and so that project definitely sparked a lot of what I'm doing now as a graduate student, which is also what we do here at Michigan State. Um, Outside of environment work, I did like girls empowerment. There were summer camps that I participated in. I played basketball. There's a first girls basketball team in ITMA. Um, I hung out at the local library and played Uno like at least twice a day, I promise. There was a time 
I my grandma sent me a puzzle, and the whole neighborhood was at my house until we finished that puzzle. That's so um, fun. Yeah, I was really good at showing up at dinner time to other people's houses. That's that's a lot of what I did. <laughs> well, it's sounds really cool that you guys get to not only, you know, learn what you want to learn and expand upon your degree, but also spend time in the community and really be immersed in that. Can you explain, um, Chad, what your experience was like? Yeah, definitely. So I served in the country of Senegal from 2012 to 2014 as an agroforestry extension agent. Um, so I kind of worked in this realm of food security and increasing food security like in the local communities that I worked in. Um, I primarily did this through um, everything from like uh, tree nursery propagation and management through um, outplanting and orchard management, specifically focusing on uh, fruit species such as like mangoes, citrus, cashews, bananas, and some other just like kind of uh, tropical species. Um, and so the way I kind of did this was working with indi individual farmers as well as like farming cooperatives and um, organized women's groups in the area. Um, and so like one project I worked on was um, accessing some USAID money to actually build a well for irrigation of a community-wide banana orchard. Um, which for me was a really cool project because a lot of times when you're planting trees, you actually don't be able to see the fruit that those trees will produce or like the income they'll generate. But bananas are very fast growing. So in my two years, we were actually able to start selling bananas in the local market before I left, which was like a really cool experience. Um, but kind of outside of that space of working with trees and agricultural landscapes, a lot of it was also just spending time with my community and like growing and building these relationships with people. Because at the end of the day, that's what allowed me to uh, complete these projects. And it wasn't necessarily like the technical skill set I brought, but a lot of times uh, just building relationships with people and then expounding on that to be able to successfully collaborate on a project. That's great. So just a reminder to all of you guys listening, you're listening to WDBM East Lansing, and this is Exposure. Today we're talking about some people, or talking to some people from MSU Peace Corps. So if people want to get involved, how do they decide what countries they go to? How does that process work there? Um, probably one first important step is to, one, come talk to us. Um, so we have an office here on campus. We're located in the International Center in the basement in room 12E. Um, you can also contact us through email at msupeace at msu.edu. Um, but right now, Peace Corps works in 62 different countries. Uh, we have over 7,000 volunteers actively serving across six different sectors. So if people are interested in English education, maybe they're interested in public health projects, agriculture, environment, community economic development, and youth development. And I would like to say that I think Eric and I are both pretty good at talking with people and kind of understanding what people might be interested in and helping them find the position that best fits their needs and wants. So... Uh... If someone, like, do you focus it, like, on their degree? Like, how is there whatever you want you kind of get to do? How does that work? Well, that's a really good question. It Peace Corps is looking for the whole person. So your degree is part of it. And if you have a degree, like I, Chad and I both had very super relevant degrees to what we where we were serving. Um, and that worked out really well for us. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, people can study, like, history of ancient Greece and, you know, maybe that doesn't seem like it would directly apply, but the point is that you're gaining skills through college and your ability to learn is going to be relevant no matter what. And Peace Corps, even with Chad and I having technical degrees that are relevant to our positions, Peace Corps looked at everything that we did, right? What kind of jobs did we have? What kind of volunteering record did we have? Um, it wasn't so much about GPA, really it's not, um, but you want to do well. Mm -hmm. But they want to see how involved are you? Um, do you do you have a goal and kind of walk with your arms open? You know, you're kind of like trying to bring people along with you as you're getting somewhere, if that makes sense. So Peace, yeah. Peace Corps is really looking at a whole person kind of thing. You can you we really we really encourage people to do something that they like. If you really like history of ancient Greece, that's awesome. Do it. And if you still want to serve in the Peace Corps. You can still do that. There, you know, just be involved and try and like find things that are effective to do to build community and to volunteer. 
So what experiences would you recommend students to get now before they apply? That's also a very good question. Um, so if you are really dedicated to, um, you know, working with maybe youth, and Peace Corps is kind of looking at that youth in development as very young adults, so maybe 18 to just barely 30 kind of area and working on like life skills and employability and just kind of a general encouragement. Um, you can do a lot of that here doing like summer camps and stuff like that. Uh, if you want to be in an environment sector, you can be working at a nature park, you can be doing gardening, you can be doing anything like this. Um, there are all, there's always a need for education. Education is a really big, in that, that traditional classroom kind of teaching of, or thought of education. But education is important throughout everything that Peace Corps volunteers do because of that first goal that Chad mentioned where we're working to try and reinforce the capacity of the people of that country. And so the ability to take whatever knowledge you have and transfer it to other people it might be a not very non-traditional classroom setting. But that education is the ability to teach is really important throughout. Um, I would also add that um, if you have like the time taking like language classes is beneficial or even just classes outside of like your major degree program. Like let's say you're in James Madison College, for example, maybe take a class on gender and environment, something that could be interesting to you. And then outside of that, just be active in your community and however you want to define community, whether that's here at MSU find clubs that interest you, seek out those leadership positions in that club, and then even at like a bigger scale, find organizations outside of MSU, like in the Lansing, East Lansing area, and just get involved. Um, a big part of just being like successful is kind of just showing up and showing that initiative. And I definitely think some of our strongest applicants out of Michigan State don't necessarily like they're not bringing like a 1600 G like a SAT score, or like a 4.0 GPA, but they're just very active in all the things that they do and are very committed to those causes. Who are some of the main applicants that you guys see? Is it mainly undergrad, graduate students? Um, do people from outside, is it just, do you guys recruit just from Michigan State University or are you active like in the Lansing community as well? So, yes, we are, as the recruiters here at Michigan State, our primary population are students at Michigan State, but we are very welcome to talking with anyone who's interested. We have information sessions and workshops throughout the semesters to kind of share information, and lots of different people come to those. Um, we are also, as return volunteers, we're part of a larger return volunteer uh, network, which is kind of Greater Lansing, Mid-Michigan. And we, one, like to get together to talk about all of our Peace Corps experiences because we never get tired of sharing those stories. Uh, we also do some service things. And part of that, the third goal is about, as a return Peace Corps volunteer, trying to share that information. So we also look for specific ways and try and make events where we can share that with, like we've been to the public libraries before and just kind of been like, here's our stuff from our host country, come check it out, or um, going and talking to high schools or whatever that is. So you guys seem like really excited about your experiences. What, so one of my um, friend's sisters actually just joined Peace Corps this year. She's in Zambia. So I've been able to kind of see her journey and her transition there, and like kind of going through stages of being really excited, really scared to be away from home for that long. What was your experience with that transition? It's definitely a challenging transition at times. Um, but I also think that Peace Corps is really good at helping you integrate in that society. Um, so like 27 months, it's a long time. It can sound like a scary number, uh, but you should know like those first three months you're in training. So you're within like a training cohort of other Americans. You're doing a lot of like language training with host families. You're doing cultural safety security training, also some technical training. So there's a really nice like kind of like gradual transition from getting off that plane in a place that more or less you may have never been, and then picking up the like a local dialect of a language, learning the new language, and kind of just like navigating that society before you actually like, arrive in your permanent community for the next two years. And then once you're like in that community, um, there's also other challenges that you encounter, whether it's maybe you like miss your family from back home, um, maybe sometimes like 
what you're used to from like amenities or daily life is like altered. Um, but Peace Corps also has a lot of available like resources to help volunteers. And then just the network of other volunteers in that country and people in your community. Like you're in this community for two years. So you make friends, uh, you have a host family, and these are people that you can rely on. And these are people that, like for me specifically, I keep in contact on basically a weekly basis at this still point in my life, which was I finished Peace Corps over five years ago. Um, so there's, like there are challenges associated with the service and everybody has different challenges, but there's also um, very like organic ways to address those challenges and try to like overcome those challenges. Yeah, so me, Personally, I joined the Peace Corps because I, one, I wanted to like just be, I didn't know what I wanted to do. First of all, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to spend time outside and I wanted to learn to speak French fluently. Peace Corps was a really good application of being able to do both of those things. Um, I also, in my senior year, found myself living in a bubble, if you will, of like, oh, this world is so comfortable. I know how to navigate it and it just seemed very comfortable and I wanted to know who I was outside of that bubble. I wanted a challenge and I, I mean, adventure, no less. Right. Um, so those were really my driving forces to join the Peace Corps, but they were also, um, the biggest challenges, right? Like I totally left any, you know, the whole social set, my family, the, the world that I knew and was just like put in and as much structure as like Chad was talking about as much structure as Peace Corps provides for the transition, it's still, I'm like, why did I leave my family? Why did I feel like I needed to do this? Uh, but knowing that there was so much to learn, like maintaining, keeping my eyes on that goal of like, I really wanted to know what life was like in Benin. And I wanted to know who I could be in that world uh, was enough to kind of just like keep, even just like hanging on by my fingernails, maybe even just like one fingernail sometimes. <laughs> Um, to get through that really low, low of missing people. And then there'd be amazing things would happen. And that would be really, really great. And I'd be like, I'm so, this is incredible. Like, I can't believe I'm here and this is happening right now. Uh, and it definitely leveled out throughout service so that by the time I was there, oh, just over a year, I was like, wow, this is like, there's never going to be another time in my life like this. And when it came time to leave, I was not ready. So I extended my service for about nine months. And so by the time I left, it was very bittersweet. I was ready to come home, but I also knew like that was like a once in a lifetime. And even I can do Peace Corps again, but it will be totally different than what I did before. And it might even be in a different place. But It's really exciting and also very brave of you to <laughs> jump out of your comfort zone and just go for it, especially like. Not only, not just like in a different state, but a different country, you know, hours and hours away. I'm just a reminder, you're listening to WDBM East Lansing, and we're talking to some people from MSU's Peace Corps. So when you were in these countries, what was one of the biggest changes you saw that either you infected or like, was there a change in you? Um, so you can just discuss no small question <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i would say for myself personally like i grew a lot um i definitely don't think if i hadn't done something like this I, like the way i encounter like challenges in my life now um i would i would encounter them entirely differently so like there was like definitely low parts of my service as well um there's also a lot of high parts as well but i think peace corps taught me that I was able to persevere through these different challenges. Um, and the like way that specifically is like helping me currently in my life is like through graduate school now. I, I definitely think I would not be able to like persevere with the challenges that graduate school has without learning how far I could like stretch myself as a Peace Corps volunteer. Yeah. When I finished my service, I felt like now I can do anything. I can do that. I can do anything. And so then I came to graduate school and now, <laughs> now I'm like, okay, if I can do Peace Corps and graduate school, I can really do it. Uh, so they're both, they're both very much challenges, but I felt like Peace Corps at, for me personally, at the time of my life, it was, it was really what I needed. Um, yeah. For that kind of personal growth and the challenge of what I was looking for. The, the, you can kind of call them like the material, the superficial challenges, like 
uh, we were just talking with other return volunteers the other night, but like, you know, you got to like brush your teeth differently if you don't have running water or, you know, using a mosquito net around your bed. Like these are things that you have to kind of get used to. Um, but it's more the, the mental and the, the social and emotional kind of changes that are harder to name. But I think a lot of them is, um, you know, you get so much more detail, right? Like you're living in detail of a place. Like if, if, if maybe you guys had heard of Republic of Benin before I entered this room, maybe not. But I would, I had not heard of it really six months before I went there. But now I have so much detail about how people live and very specific like names, places, people, and what their experiences are, what their joys are, what their struggles are, what their challenges are, that I would never have known how much I didn't know, like those whole personal biases and, and, and stereotypes of as generous or as sensitive as I might have thought myself to be. I am way more generous and sensitive and open to like, but what are people actually living like in whatever part of the world and trying to understand like people are people and trying to really bring that to everybody and let everyone be an individual. Yeah, I think if you, that makes sense. It, it does absolutely. Okay. Like, because when you're in a different country, you have to adjust to their culture and the way they do life. And I think it really broadens our horizons to say that, hey, you know, we all are similar, but we also live life very differently at the same time. Yeah. Um. So, last question for all of our listeners that want to get involved: How can they contact you, and what's one one reason that they should join? Uh, probably the easiest way to contact us is through email at msupeace at msu.edu. Um, we have a phone number as well, which is 517-432-7474. Um, or just drop by our office. So we're in the International Center in 12E. We're there definitely Monday and Tuesdays from 1 to 3, but as well as throughout the other parts of the week as well. Um, and just some things like to get more involved in Peace Corps. Like, let's say you're um, a graduating senior this year. We do have, like, an application deadline coming up in January. So if Peace Corps is something that you are interested in doing, definitely come talk to us, and we can answer those questions about why Peace Corps, how Peace Corps, and just kind of give more information about why is this something that you may or may not be interested in doing. And we, like I said before, we have events throughout the semester. We don't currently have a plan for the spring. We just finished the fall Plan. So we'll have another plan up and going for the spring when we return from uh, the break. But if you're really interested right now, I would recommend looking online. There's a, some virtual um, sessions coming up on the peacecorps.gov website. So on December 6th, there's a very simple introduction to Peace Corps. And December 12th, there's a regional info session for Sub-Saharan Africa, which is important because... A lot of our volunteers go there. There are a lot of countries we have agreements with there. So if you're interested in Peace Corps and open to kind of going anywhere, learning about Sub-Saharan Africa is a good idea. And on January 13, which would be after that application deadline, um, but still you can apply anytime, on January 13 is the uh, sector-specific about public health programs. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. And there you have it. Another episode of Exposure in the Books. If you missed anything, feel free to check out our website at impact89fm.org where you can find our weekly exposure podcast. Also, if you would like to come visit us and talk about your respected organization at MSU or a nonprofit organization in the East Lansing area, please feel free to contact us again on our website at impact89fm.org. And don't forget to connect with us on social media for current news and updates happening in our community. Just search for Impact 89FM. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today's an exciting day. We have three people here with us. We have Allie Brady, Jeremy Rapp, and Ben McCarthy. Jeremy, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? 
I'm a graduate student in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences. My work focuses on the food, energy, and water nexus, specifically food for myself. But to talk a little bit about what that nexus is, which is kind of a jargony idea to think of, it's, it's all of the effort that cumulatively goes into the food that's grown, how it's grown, and how people end up eating that food across the world. So my research specifically uses artificial intelligence, don't think like Terminator, using just really high-level math algorithms that go into to that level of, of computing, combined with a lot of the cloud computing stuff that's coming from Google and Amazon in order to process a very, very large amount of the satellite data that we have from the, the different networks across the world. So places like NASA, NOAA, European Space Agency, they make all this data available. I take that data, provide it to this this neural network or these 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 artificial intelligences, and have that classify imagery for where farmers are using water to to keep their crops growing. And so this is a really complicated thing, which is why we've had to turn to artificial intelligence because someone can't just go through by hand and and figure it out. It would take too much time, too much effort. And so I like to think of myself as sort of working as a, as a teammate with, with this artificial intelligence that we can both learn what's going on and generate better products that would eventually help inform people and also help inform the directions both from the, the water and the energy standpoint. Very nice. And then Ali and Ben, can you elaborate a little bit more about what both of you contribute towards this research project? I'm Ben. I work on the energy aspect of the food, energy, and water nexus. My work focuses mainly on how much energy it takes to irrigate the fields that farmers use. I look at how changing technologies affect energy consumption. So if you are a farmer and you have, let's say, wheat that you grow and you use an old uh, type of irrigation system that uses a lot of water, you tend to use a lot of energy, uh, and then you decide to switch into a more modern system, which has happened in recent years, I see how that impacts uh, the amount of energy you use, whether it's from electric or from natural gas or from diesel. I developed a code that can calculate. It can be applied to, you know, as long as I have the data, I can apply it anywhere else. But right now I have for Kansas how much energy goes into irrigation using those different factors. And that adds on to the water aspect of it that Allie works on. Thanks, Ben. Like he mentioned, my name is Allie, and I work on the water aspect of the few nexus. So we've already talked about water, we've already talked about energy, and I look at how different irrigation systems in agriculture affect the groundwater table. So Ben mentioned how different irrigation systems affect energy and the amount of energy that we use, but I look at how that affects the water that we're using, and in general, how we can make the water that we have sustainable for more food and more irrigation in the future. Thank you, everybody, for those incredible introductions. Jeremy, how do you make these maps? Do you use a technology known as geographical information systems, also known as GIS, to make them? We do use GIS in this work, geographic information systems, as Danny said it. What it does for us and how we use it, essentially, it becomes the tool that we use to make these maps that we're working with and then explore how those systems are changing through time. Is it a software that anyone can download online or something? There are free versions of GIS that you can get. If you are a student at Michigan State, you have access to some of the paid-for ones. Uh, ArcGIS is a lot of, is the, the most common one that I think a lot of people use, and that's sort of the industry standard. Some of the work that we do because of the level of, or specifically the work that I do, the data needs have gone past the, the ability of ArcGIS and some of the traditional GIS systems to handle. So we've moved largely to like Google Cloud to, to deal with that issue. And then is the Google Cloud what provides that AI aspect of your project? Yeah, so AI, the way it's actually utilized is more like any other normal coding. Um, you have functions that you're using and you're plugging and playing sort of with, with your data and seeing sort of what outcomes you're getting. The way that that, that ends up being used is, is you're working in the cloud. All of your coding is done in the cloud. All the processing is done up there, but it's behaving just like any other scientist would use Python or R or something like that. And Ben, you had mentioned that you do some coding as well in regards to the energy aspect of this. Can you please explain what you do and if you use GIS as well? For my project, I used, like Jeremy mentioned, Python. Python is a coding language. Uh, it lets you more directly compu uh, com communicate with a computer 
and tell it what to do. And for scientists, this is a very common language to use to try to do uh, more uh, computationally heavy projects. So I use it to both uh, use GIS maps, like the ones that Jeremy produces, and I also use it to grab uh, government survey data about these farms that are being used and the different irrigation technologies. With the code that I wrote, it uses both of those. And I grab some of the map products that have been created by our lab and they give me information about the region in terms of how much water there is underground, so the groundwater, where on the ground that, that water is at, so the groundwater table. And it gives me properties of how quickly the water goes through these different rocks underground. Using all this, I was able to assign a value for how much energy different systems use, and then calculate total energy for each farm. And then I aggregated it all as a big product for Kansas. Thanks for that large overview about your research. I actually have been learning Python myself and I find this very interesting. I was wondering, how do these people actually measure the amount of groundwater in the area? Do you go out there and conduct these surveys, or are you just receiving them from Kansas? It's a great question, and that goes back to uh, making these map products. So one of the best ways to do it is to actually go out and either collect the data yourself or have some sort of instrument at a specified location that you know that automatically collects data. In Kansas, for example, we have about 4,000 wells that were dug up by the government, a government agency that regulates groundwater and is called the Kansas Geological Survey. And they go in there, they make these monitoring wells, and with that, they can measure how deep the water is. Then they put that into an online data uh, system, and I can acquire it online. So that's, that's how I use it, and that's how we make some of these products as well. Since we are in Michigan, I would imagine it's a little bit hard for you to communicate with Kansas and it's a little bit far away. Why are you using data from Kansas instead of in Michigan? It actually goes back to my last answer. Kansas has a lot of data. We have the survey data. We have the information from the farmers. They banded together and decided that we are using too much water and we need to keep track of how much we're using. So that is why Kansas is one of the places and they worked with the, the government to try to get these survey data out there. And we end up using it. I'm starting to notice that Ben studies a lot of information that deals with water and the water table. So, Ali, how do you study the information about the water table differently from Ben? A lot of the same data. I'm actually using the process data that he has gone through and cleaned. So that's very helpful. But I take it one step further, and he looks at it on a well-to-well -well basis. And what I do is accumulate all of these wells or bring them all together so the data that we have becomes not just point data, but it becomes like farm level data. So instead of like one farmer having three wells on his farm, we take all of the averages of these well points and figure out a farm level water use. So that's something that I'm looking at. And then also, how do we identify different irrigation systems? Because like Ben said, we have great information for Kansas, and that's really awesome. But we don't have that information everywhere else. So I use Jeremy's map products and the products that he's making for not just Kansas, but everywhere. And I use the information that Ben has given me from Kansas and look at all these different places and how do we identify different irrigation technologies based on what the irrigation looks like. So if you take... A picture of irrigation from an airplane and you're looking at it and you can see a circle in any farm. You can say, okay, that's probably irrigated by a system called center pivot because it's out of the center and irrigates water like a sprinkler. And then there's other systems like drip systems that you just have really long hoses that run through the fields and that creates a different pattern that you can see from airplanes. I'm looking at how can we identify these different systems and provide the information that we have in Kansas everywhere else. Now, to remind our audiences, can any of you tell us about what the final goal of understanding these irrigation systems are? Is it to create a better way to create food, crops that is going to be easier for the future, or is it more have to deal with geological sense? In a broad sense, the reason we're doing this research is because Water is a very limited resource. These aquifers that we study and the regions that we're looking at, in, in, in the last century, we have been taking a lot more water from these systems that gets 
recharge into a, so we like to look at them from the from the point of view of someone who's looking at sustainability they're seeing that these systems are not sustainable the way that we are growing crops and the attitude about conserving water and energy consumption needs to stay within the realm of of something that we can carry on to the future and so we try to expand the knowledge of these things and hopefully suggest or at least for now, we are analyzing it and telling you the impact of, of what these farmers are doing. Have there been any direct results of the work that has been done in your laboratory in Kansas so far? We do have some people that are working in Kansas. We work directly with the Kansas Geological Survey, um, and they have implemented some of our results, but none of those results are actually writing rules because it's hard to be in Michigan Um and then go back and say, okay, we're going to make these rules for Kansas. So most of the stuff that we've done has been a lot of data analysis of implementations of policy or when they make policy in Kansas, and then we see what happens after that. So the biggest thing that we've noticed is a Sheridan 6 Lima or a really small uh, county-level place in Kansas that has put water caps on the amount of water they're using for irrigation And we look at the impacts of that, and it turns out the water caps are actually helping with groundwater depletion or the amount of groundwater being taken out of underground. So that's good that we have that data and also that our data is helping analyze that. But we haven't made any rules for Kansas because, again, we're in Michigan. Jeremy, this question is directed towards you. Since you're the one who makes the maps, I'm assuming that you look at the topography of the satellite imagery that you get. Can you please explain a little bit more about that, but also about how would the topography impact the irrigation? Like if a high plain or something would need more water versus like a flat land or something? So that's a, that's a really good question because it targets how we even understand these landscapes to begin with. So topography, meaning the elevation and how that changes over an area and the impact of the, you know, what that's going to have on, on a system is a big component of what's what's going on, but also largely environmental properties. So how much rain a system gets, you know, how much humidity there is in general, all these different things impact what's going on and what we can see because they drive how green a landscape is to begin with. So we take that consideration in. And when we start expanding out of areas like Kansas, we have to start turning to AI because a, a single person can't conceptualize how all those things are interplaying. So, so we, we consider topography, we consider climatological data, the history, uh, environmental data, all this stuff going in and try and build a framework for artificial intelligence to, to help us pick out these, these irrigated fields. And Kansas is kind of the, the, the bed of that. Topography specifically in how it would impact things is it affects where the water table is. It affects how far farmers have to go down to pull water out, uh, which drives both the, the energy side of things and also, depending on the, the technology that farmers are using, it can impact how much water they have to use because of the, the soils that are there and how fast those drain. Um, there's, a, there's a huge amount of, of impact with these different variables and sort of the, the, the interface that's there. Well, it sounds like each of you are all masters of your craft at this point in the game right now. Could you tell us a little bit about any results that you've found during your research here? In terms of energy use, we have gotten some results. I looked at how changing these irrigation technologies has affected energy use. We are looking at, like Jeremy said, it's a whole dynamic system. What we've seen in general is that there's no major change in how much energy has been used over the last 20 years for uh, the data set that we're looking at in Kansas, then if you delve a little bit deeper, we see that as these systems have been changing, water consumption has also uh, continued. These aquifers, like I mentioned, the whole reason for our study is that we're looking at how much water is being taken out versus how much goes back in. The water table for the groundwater has been decreasing steadily. It's gone from around 150 feet on average to around 100 in the last 20 years. That's huge, that's a ton of water. 
especially in, in the area that we're looking at. What the more efficient technology has been able to do is offset the amount of energy that you need to pull water from deeper. When you use these more efficient pumps, these more efficient systems, uh, it cuts right at the farm how much energy you need. But if the water table keeps going down, you know, it's only been able to offset it. Leading off of that answer, Ben, uh, he talked about how the water table is decreasing, and that's true. Even though we're going to more efficient irrigation technologies, we see that farmers on average are increasing the amount of area that they're irrigating. So even though we're using water more efficiently, we're irrigating more area. So we're not actually decreasing that decline. We're not stopping the water table decline except for in areas where they've put direct water caps or water usage caps on how much irrigation or how much water they can use for irrigation. So in those areas, we do see that the water table has stopped declining at such a fast rate because they have caps on water use. Instead of just increasing their amount of irrigated area because they have more efficient technologies and they have more water essentially or water enough to spread out over larger places they're using less water so that's good so kind of going off of both of those uh, we're talking about an area specifically kansas here where it's it's more obvious why farmers would need to use water in the first place for their crops and so one of the goals that, that we have now is to expand outside of kansas and the high plains to the different areas uh California's Central Valley is always a, a popular one, and we're working there now, too, um, as well as Michigan, which when you start talking about farmers needing water to help their crops grow, you don't think of Michigan. And it's a it's a really interesting area because a lot of scientists can't quite explain why farmers would be doing that anyways. And so the maps that, that we're trying to, to create and, and use here, they'll capture that information and how that's changed sort of behind the scenes. Because these other areas that really, really are, are, are unsustainable, obviously unsustainable right now, get all the attention. But this is a, a, a phenomenon that's happening everywhere, across the United States especially, and, and across the world uh, as, as populations grow. Just because people, you need more food. And we want to get ahead of it, specifically for Michigan, because it's going to be the future of, of, of crop growing. The Midwest is when we start to actually run out of water in these areas or it becomes too hard to grow there. And if we're already losing water to irrigation in these places, then, you know, it's going to be catastrophic if we're not aware of, of how we can get ahead. So to give an example that, that kind of relates to what Jeremy was saying, a place like Texas, right? There, the way that agriculture works is, is pretty similar to Kansas, right? People, uh, Come in, you have farmers, they drill a well, you start using your water, irrigation systems change depending on your needs, on more efficient systems that come out. However, in Texas, they don't have that much regulation for water use. You can, all you have to do in Texas to have a well and pump water out of it is pay a one-time fee. And there's no limit to how much water you use, no limit to, there's, there's no interaction usually, you know, unless you're friends with your farmer, there's no really interaction saying, you know, let's regulate, let's put caps on what we're using. In Texas, there's papers that already came out that say that within the next 50 years, their aquifer is going to run dry, at least a portion of the high plains where they're at. So it's very unsustainable. Thanks for explaining that, Ben. These are all really important topics that I think that people need to be very aware of. I think one of the important aspects of expanding the awareness there is, is who you talk about is aware, you know, who is the person that is benefiting from this? And largely, you know, we're working to create these data products, understand these systems, but we all want to push that even further and, and inform the farmers that, that this matters, the people that have grown up and lived in here and hope that their children will inherit the same land that they've, they've tended. You know, we want to provide them the tools that will allow them to sustain that into the future because ultimately they feed everyone anyways. And so if we can work to benefit them, we all want to pitch in there and, and, and get that information out. Part of that is being able to explain the science that we do to people who don't work in the sciences. So that's one of the reasons, obviously, that we're coming on the show, because we really believe in communicating our science to non-scientists. So hopefully this was interesting and informative. 
But also, we want to be able to make science attainable to everybody and accessible to everybody, not just people who work in a university or people who work in the education system. But anybody who can benefit from the science should be able to understand the science. And in order to fully be able to explain what you're doing, you have to have science. So all of us have a really big passion for communicating our science to non-scientists. And hopefully we'll be able to do that with our master's degrees in the future. Well, thank you all for coming on to the show to talk about your research. I agree with you, Ali, that it's incredibly important to actually get this research, not only to other scientists, but important stakeholders that have a role within the research and the application of it. You've been listening to The Sci-Files on Exposure. Thanks for Jeremy Whiting, our general manager, Olivia Mitchell, our station manager, and our program managers, Amber Kanutsky and George McNeil. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Sci-Files. <laughs>